0: Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in this lengthy series entitled Out of Bondage Into Abundance and we are now working our way slowly but surely through part six of seven parts and all of the notes and previous recordings of studies are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and I did go on there today just to double-check and make sure that everything is up to date, and it seems that it is, so everything including last week's recording should be on there now. Um, What a blessing that we can come together in this way on the phone with all of our busy schedules. We can still meet like this and study God's Word together and I feel a real joy, a real quickening every week when we come together like this and I trust that the Holy Spirit will minister to you and encourage you as we look at God's Word together. This series that we have been doing for some time now is really looking at the entire history of Israel going down into Egypt, coming out of slavery in Egypt, traveling through the wilderness, and then ultimately entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. All of this, of course, was known by God from the beginning, and he revealed bits and pieces of it to his prophets. Most significantly, uh, we have seen, (coughs) excuse me, we have seen In Genesis 15, God basically outlined way back then with Abraham the entire story, how his descendants would go into a strange land, they would be slaves there, and then finally God would bring them out and return them to the land of Canaan. And what we are focusing on now in part 6 is the conquering of seven enemy nations that made their home, of all places, in the promised land. And God knew those wicked nations were dwelling in the promised land, and He wanted to dislodge them, destroy them, drive them completely out of that holy land. And God was going to do it, but he wanted the children of Israel to trust in him and to work with him as those enemy nations were defeated. And they had to cooperate with God in a number of ways, particularly not to have any alliances, any marriages, any treaties with these seven wicked nations, but rather to completely destroy them and drive them out. Now, I keep repeating this, but it's important. All of this is real history. This isn't some fairy tale. This really happened. Archeology span has continually supported and backed up different aspects of this history of Israel. But we're looking at it beyond the history It is a type and a shadow, a picture of our entire spiritual journey as Christians. We begin also in slavery, the slavery of sin. We are delivered out of bondage through the blood of the Passover lamb, just as the Israelites were. They use literal lambs. Our lamb is the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we have seen repeatedly the parallels between the literal history of Israel coming out of bondage and the spiritual fulfillment in our lives as Christians. Now, digging right in tonight, we are looking at the second of these seven nations that had to be conquered. And we have mentioned that each one of these nations represents a power of evil, sin, or darkness that must be conquered in our lives as we move from bondage into the abundance that God has promised for us. We studied the Canaanites first and foremost because Canaan gave rise to five of the other six wicked nations. Canaanites, we saw, represents a, a spirit of worldliness, the love of money, and by no coincidence, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, that the love of money is the root of all other evil. Very interesting, Canaan is the root of all these other evil nations, and we have now come to the second of these seven nations, the Amorites, and we have seen that their name very clearly represents pride. They lived in high places. Their name means publicity or prominence. They were the mountaineers. They lived in high places. And we have taken several weeks already to study this one because it is such a prevalent human problem, the problem of Pride. And just when you think you don't have any of it, God reveals to you that you still have a great deal of pride in your life. And I would dare say, if we begin to entertain thoughts that we are no longer proud, we are probably so deceived that we don't know how proud we are. Remember, pride by definition is a form of self-deception. That's what makes it so powerful and so scary. We can deceive ourselves. Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts without God's assistance. The Holy Spirit has to shine His light into the darkness of our hearts and reveal the the roots and the tentacles of this evil thing called pride that can work in so many different ways in our lives. And we have been looking at seven steps that will help us to overcome pride. And each one of the seven steps basically begins with the same two words humble yourself and we saw that numerous scriptures point to the fact that we have one of two choices we either are proactive and we humble ourselves or we wait for God to humble us and it is definitely preferred that we take the first choice we need to proactively understand God's Word and look for ways to humble ourselves, rather than wait, like King Nebuchadnezzar, for God to lower the boom on us and humble us. So, we're continuing on, and if you are following in the notes, we have now come to page 105 And again, this is in part 6, Conquering Seven Nations, and we want to begin looking at point 4, and just to very quickly recap, we saw step 1, humble yourself, submit to God, and to others. The others part is where it becomes difficult. It's easy to submit to God, as long as we don't have to listen to anyone else, but part of our submission to God is also submitting to authority that He places over our lives whether it's our pastor, our husband, our boss, the police officer, the government, there are a variety of authorities that God places over each one of us and we must learn how to submit under those authorities. Point two was, humble yourself, boast in the Lord, not about yourself. We are all natural boasters. We like to boast and brag about something. But rather than brag about ourselves, we learn how to boast in the Lord, to glorify God, to tell about Him and His great works. And you can do that all day long. That's why the Bible says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brag about your God. Be, be bold. Tell people how the Lord has helped you, how he saved you, healed you, delivered you, answered your prayers. What a great God. He, he formed this whole universe out of nothing. We can never tire of praising and exalting and glorifying God. And actually, that is a great Antidote to our human problem of boasting about ourselves. Focus on God. Boast about how great He is. Third one, humble yourself, acknowledge who you really are. That's a tough one. Because if you really take Scripture at face value, the Scriptures paint a very bleak picture about the human condition. We are nothing, as I just quoted from Jeremiah 17. We are desperately wicked. We're fallen creatures. We're proud. We're arrogant. We're angry. We're hateful. We're, we're just full of all kinds of evil, Jesus said. That's why we must be born again. We must be completely transformed, because in our fallen condition, Paul puts it very plainly, He searched himself and he said, I find no good thing in me. No good thing. And basically, scriptures we've already looked at, we are nothing. Now, continuing on to point four. These are steps toward overcoming pride, overcoming the Amorite spirit. And they're all interrelated, but we're trying to pick out different facets of this process. Point number four, humble yourself. Seek the praise of God, not men. This is a tough one too, because we naturally look to other people for approval, for their praise, for them to honor us, for them to acknowledge how great we are, But a few scriptures in the New Testament will hopefully help us here. Let's begin in John chapter 5 and verse 44. And you know, the beautiful thing about Jesus, He never taught anything that He wasn't already living and modeling in His own life. And we'll talk a little bit about how He did that in a minute. But let's read the scripture first. John 5 and verse 44. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So, this scripture suggests that we have a very critical choice to make in our lives, and we'll make it many, many times, over and over and over, We have to choose between seeking glory from other people and seeking glory, or praise, some of the translations read, that comes from God. And it it really boils down to, for whom am I really living? Am I living for other people, or am I living for God? Do I want other people to notice me, or do I want God to notice me? And how you answer that question really dictates your entire life. And as I mentioned, Jesus didn't teach anything that he wasn't already living. And in our sermon this past Sunday, we looked at this in John chapter 4, Uh, I'm just going to paraphrase, we don't need to look up the verses, but in John 4, the opening verses, I think it's verse 1 through 3, the news was spreading around that Jesus was gaining many disciples and that many were being baptized. As soon as he found out that that news was spreading around, he left Judea. Now, (laughs) most of us would have done just the opposite. If news was spreading around that our ministry was gaining success, we had more followers, more people were joining our church, more people were getting saved and baptized, my goodness, we would pose for photographs. We would stay behind to do interviews for the newspaper and the TV and and uh, other media sources so we could get our name in, in the headlines and in the bright lights. Jesus ran away from those situations. Why? He wasn't seeking praise from men. He only wanted to please His Father. And He repeats that over and over in the same Gospel, in the Gospel of John. He wasn't doing anything to impress people. He was living out his life to impress, to glorify, and to please his Father in heaven. A little later in John, in John chapter 6 verse 15, it says there was a group of people coming, they wanted to make Jesus king. Oh my goodness, what would we do today if we found out that people were coming to make us the next king of America? Wow! Bring it on! About time they recognized my greatness. Jesus ran away when he heard that they were coming to make him a king. Why? Because this was again the praises of men. And he knew how fickle man is. One minute they want to make you king, next minute they're screaming, crucify him. And you and I... I know it's a tough choice, and a lot of times our flesh gets the best of us, and we just want some approval, some praise, some acknowledgement from man, but we need to keep coming back to this decision, I seek not glory from man, I seek glory from God. What would we rather hear? people around us patting us on the back saying, good job, brother, nice job, sister. You sang really well in the choir this Sunday. Or would we rather hear those words ringing out from heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. May God help us to change our perspective and to seek praise from God and not from men. Look at another very important passage in the Gospels. This one is found in Luke chapter 14 and we'll read from verse 7 to 11. Jesus often picked on the Pharisees because they were the exact opposite of what he was trying to teach. They sought the praise that comes from men. They liked their long flowing robes and places of honor and titles and they wanted to be in the limelight. They were just the opposite spirit of the spirit of Christ. And notice what it says here in Luke 14 from 7 to 11. When he noticed, and in the outline notes, I have put those two words in all caps, when he noticed. Jesus notices these things. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So, noticing this tendency prompted one of his many parables. He told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Oh, come on, let's be honest. We all love that place of honor. We love to be acknowledged. We love to have our name mentioned. We love to find out that maybe somebody on the internet has mentioned us or put a photo of us up on Facebook or whatever. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But, when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a higher place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. And here's the punchline. For all those who exalt themselves, will be humbled, all those who humble themselves will be exalted. We've talked about these two things. Either humble yourself, or you will be humbled. Better to humble yourself, and then God can exalt you. But if you try to exalt or promote yourself, he says, definitely, you will be humbled. This thing runs deep in our culture today, this thing of wanting a place of honor, desiring the praises of men, wanting to have big titles after our name, wanting people to acknowledge our titles and our positions and our accomplishments. We read about it already in 1 John 2. It's called the boastful pride of life. We love to boast about what we are, what we have, what we've done, who we think we are, what education we have, and you can fill in the blanks. It's all about me, myself, and I. Seeking to exalt myself. Seeking that place of honor. And Jesus is very clear here. If you go on seeking for that kind of honor, He will put you down. He will humble you. And I've mentioned this repeatedly because I'm an expert at this. I have been humbled many times by God over the years and it is not pleasant. And I guarantee you when you start to move in a spirit of pride where you want to show everybody else who you are and how great you are and how spiritual you are and how many churches you've opened, and how many prophecies you've given, and and on and on it goes. God will find a way to humble you. And I have discovered that He is a master, as did uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord knows how to humble those who walk in pride. Better to take the initiative, look for the lowest place, Humble yourself, get low to the ground so that you don't have too far to go. You're already down. God won't have to humble you. You know, I could think of many stories to tell on myself, but I'll tell you one. Some years ago, um, I was in charge of a training center for young ministers, and we would often take groups of ministers out on little missions trips. Sometimes we would go for evangelistic meetings and things of that nature. Well, we had uh, a large van. It was actually a small, kind of a minibus that the ministry owned, and it could carry about, I guess, 15 or so people. And one morning, uh, I learned that one of the ministers when driving this mini bus had backed into another car and scraped the rear end of the bus and my goodness i gave her a good scolding in front of all of the other ministers that morning you know you're you're not faithful with god's uh property you're you're you know You're wrecking his car, and you're not being careful with the things God has given you, and on and on I went with my rant. Well, God is good. That same evening, the same group of ministers got into that bus, and guess who the chauffeur was? Yours truly. And as we were backing the bus out of the ministry parking lot, you could hear this long, protracted, grating, screeching sound of metal on metal as I raked the whole side of the bus across a fence as I was backing out of the parking lot. And there was dead silence in the bus. And of course everyone still remembered quite freshly my rebuke for the poor sister who had uh, scratched the back of the bus that morning. Well, here I am in my pride backing the bus out and did far more damage to the whole side of the bus than that poor sister did. Silence for about a minute. I couldn't even speak, and finally I had to stop the van humble myself and just apologize to everybody in the van, because I understood what had just happened. God humbled me. And let me tell you something, it's not fun, it's not pleasant, but I thank God that He does. He puts us back in our place, otherwise we'll keep uh, growing in that pride and puffing ourselves up and thinking we're somebody, we're nobody, we're nothing. Another scripture that we want to look at is found in Matthew 6. I mentioned earlier the Pharisees. They seem to embody this spirit of an Amorite, publicity, pride, prominence, wanting those seats of honor, wanting everybody to notice them and you know acknowledge how spiritual how righteous, how holy they were. And here in Matthew 6, Jesus points out how the Pharisees were actually announcing their righteousness with trumpets. Not literally with trumpets, but indicating how they wanted to publicize their spirituality and their righteousness so as to be honored by others. Matthew 6 verses 1 to 6 Jesus says be careful be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Underline those words to be seen by them and I might as well just pause now It's not just what we do that matters, it's why we do it, the motive behind our actions. We can do lots of righteous things, we can do lots of good works, as were the Pharisees, but Jesus is getting down to something very critical here, it's what we would refer to as the motive What is the motive behind what we're doing? We may be praying, fasting, reading the Bible, giving alms, putting a big offering in the donation basket. It can be any number of things. It's not just what you do. It's why are you doing it? Well, here it's very clear their motivation was to be seen not by God, to be seen by men. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And if you read all of Matthew 6, he highlights several key acts of righteousness. Prayer, fasting, and giving money. Those three in particular he's talking about here. Don't practice those things in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets To be honored by others. Oh, look how much money I just gave. Look at the huge donation I gave to the church. Everybody noticed me. That's what he means by announcing it with a trumpet. Hypocrites, he calls them. To be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Oh, they could pray up a storm when somebody was watching. Beautiful oratories would come from their lips when they were praying in public. Because they weren't praying for God to hear their heart, they were praying to be heard by men. Oh, what a wonderful prayer so-and-so prayed. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. That's it. You got it. Whatever applause or pat on the back you got from men, that's it. No more reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And, You can read on for yourself, but he he goes on and talks about fasting. You know, when we fast, what do we do? Blow a trumpet and say, hey everybody, look how spiritual I am. I've been fasting for 70 days. Look how skinny I am. Look how spiritual I am. And everybody goes, whoa, he's really spiritual. He's been fasting for two weeks now. Okay, fine, you already got your reward." If you want a reward from God, Jesus says, take a bath, anoint your head, make yourself look nice, and don't tell anyone that you're fasting. Keep it secret between you and the Father. And you know, when you do that, you assure that you're not falling into this trap of seeking praise and honor from men. And let me say this, This thing is rampant in churches. And really, uh, pardon my French, but it makes God sick when He sees all of us strutting around in the church trying to show off and look for the praise of men uh, for whatever it is that we're doing. Whether we're singing or playing a musical instrument or preaching or prophesying or praying or fasting or whatever. If we're doing it to impress people, it makes God sick. And the the opposite is just as true. When we begin to do these things for an audience of one, in other words, we're just doing it for the Father. We really don't care if anybody else sees what we're doing because we're doing it for God. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He sees what you're doing. Nobody else has to see it. God sees it. And if you want a reward that comes from God, then that's enough. But we have far too many ministries, far too many ministers that are just promoting themselves, lifting themselves up. They want to be in the bright lights. They want everybody to know who they are. And... Really, that's a sure way to kill a revival. And if you read about the great revivals, such as the one that took place on Azusa Street in the early 1900s, inevitably, when the Spirit of God starts to move, the flesh tries to get in there too. And you have people that start to lift themselves up, start to promote themselves, and inevitably it shuts down the revival and it kills the anointing. Let's not seek for the honor, the praise that comes from men. Let's focus on the Father, on pleasing Him, on hearing Him say, well done, on having Him pat us on the back and say, good job, Nobody else saw what you did, but I saw it. Finally, on this point, point number four, Matthew 23. Jesus again zeroes in on the Pharisees here. And notice what he says about them. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 5. Everything they do, and in context, if you want to study it, it's referring to the Pharisees. Everything they do is done for people to see. Now just stop and let that sink in. Jesus is again putting his finger on their motive. He's not saying what they're doing is wrong, he's saying why they do it. Everything they done, everything they do is is done with this motivation for people to see them. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Here it comes again. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Oh, they love those titles. They love those places of honor. They love to be in the most important seat sitting up on stage with the bright lights on them. But you are not to be called Rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and He is in heaven. I would challenge you to consider the Pope's visit here in America last week. How does all that line up? With what Jesus is teaching here. The honor, the parades, the crowds that was afforded to this human being. Jesus says, don't allow it. You're not to be called rabbi. You're not to be called father. You have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. In other words, don't look for titles. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We have to be very careful to allow the Holy Spirit to search Our motives. You see, the Holy Spirit goes beyond the surface actions. And if you listen to Him carefully, He'll start to convict you when your motives are wrong. And as I have mentioned earlier tonight, it can apply to anything. I can do something really spiritual, but I'm doing it with the wrong motivation. I want to show off how great I am, how spiritual I am, what a wonderful prayer I can pray, or what a beautiful sermon I can deliver, or how wonderful I can play my musical instrument or sing in the church, and on and on it goes. What is the motive behind what we are doing? If we're just looking for man's applause for man's approval, for man's appreciation, that's all you're going to get. You'll get a few rounds of applause, you get a few pats on the back, and Jesus says, that's it, you're done. You've already gotten your reward. But if we start to do things to please the Father, we know that He's watching us, He's listening to us, He's looking into our heart, and with a pure heart, We really want to praise God. We want to glorify God. We want to do something in return for what He's already done for us. We're loving Him because He first loved us. We're laying down our life because He first laid down His life on the cross. Those kinds of actions please God and they bring an eternal reward. A far greater reward than these fickle, passing uh, applauses that we can sometimes generate from people around us. Again, summarizing point four, humble yourself, seek the praise of God, not men. Again, this is something we have to do. This is a choice we make. This is a step that we proactively seek to follow. I'm going to look for praise that comes from God and not from men. I'm going to choose the lowest place. I'm going to choose to remain hidden out of the limelight. I'm not going to try to sound a trumpet and draw attention to myself. Rather, I will seek to remain hidden I'll go into my closet and pray in secret. I'll keep it to myself when I'm fasting. Um, I'll not look for those important seats, those places of honor. You know, it's almost been humorous for me over the years in working with many, many uh, other ministers and many other people, uh, particularly younger ministers uh it's 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 often humorous to look how they seek that important seat. They want to sit next to somebody important they want to kind of snuggle up to whoever's in charge and and be at that table where all the important speakers are sitting or where all of the chief pastors are having their lunch. Well, we're going to learn in the next point and this connects with what we've just studied, uh, look for the lowest people. Go sit at their table. Be willing to associate with people of low position rather than seeking the most important seats. And, you know, let me, let me come back one more time to this Matthew 23. Jesus said they, the Pharisees, whatever they do, they do for people to see." They love places of honor, they love the most important seats, and they love to be greeted with respect and called rabbi and father, etc. Our society today, the entire culture, is built around this thing. What's your title? Who are you? Vice President of this chief of that, senior pastor of that, chief apostle of that, head bishop, Ph.D. this, doctor that, and on and on we go with our titles. You know, I think they're meaningless to Jesus. Jesus really doesn't give a hoot about our title. He cares about who we are. And who we are is not defined by our title. Now, Maybe you went to medical school, passed all the medical exams, and you are a practicing physician. That's great. That's wonderful. You are a doctor. But you're not a doctor because you have MD after your name. You're a doctor because you know how to take care of people. Function in who you are. And don't worry about what your title is. If you have a function, people will acknowledge your function. And if you have a title and no function to back up the title, people will eventually wake up to that also. Alright, very quickly, let me at least introduce step number five here, and I'm in no hurry. We want to take our time dealing with these Amorites, because this is such a pervasive human problem, the problem of pride. So much in the Bible about it. All right, here we go. Step five. If you want to overcome pride, humble yourself, serve others, and in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Oh, that's impossible! Esteem others? Better than myself? That's exactly what it says. Let's kick this one off by looking at Jesus. The testimony of Jesus Christ Himself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Let nothing be done. Here again, We're talking about the motivation behind what we're doing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Oh my God. (laughs) How often what drives us, what motivates us is selfish selfish ambition. I want to promote myself. I want people to see me. I want them to esteem me, to praise me, to honor me. What what does it say? Let nothing be done with that motivation. Nothing done through selfish ambition or conceit But in lowliness of mind, the mind has to change. Our whole way of thinking has to be transformed. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, some listening may find that totally off the chart. Are you kidding me? Esteem someone else better than myself? It sounds pretty crazy, but I would challenge you to try it. As you try it, and you begin to practice this, the more you do it, the better you feel. And we think that by putting down others, we're going to lift ourselves up. But really, just the opposite happens. When you lift others up around you, God starts to lift you up. And when you put others down, God puts you down. Learn to value, honor, praise, esteem other people more than yourself. They're better than I am. They're smarter than I am. They're more spiritual than I am. He's a better preacher than I am. He sings better than I do. In lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, remember, it talks about the mind in lowliness of mind. How are we going to change our minds to be able to do this? Next verse. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Oh, wow. If anybody deserves to have a reputation, it's Jesus Christ. And what did he do? Knowing that he was co-equal with his Father in Heaven, he made himself, he chose to do this, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew He had been co-equal with His Father from before time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brought the universe into existence. Knowing all that, one translation I like, it says, He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself. Being in the form of God, He emptied Himself made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the likeness of men, the form of a bondservant, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. If Jesus could humble himself, then you and I can humble ourselves. That pretty much ends the whole discussion right there. Jesus is our example. He had no sin. He knew no sin. And yet, he humbled himself. How much more you and I, sinful, proud people, need to humble ourselves. Everybody in the world today is so concerned about their reputation. Well, Jesus had a reputation and he discarded it. He made himself of no reputation. Jesus could boldly teach about these things because he lived them. And here's what he says in the next verse and we'll have to stop here. Very well known scripture but we often miss part of it. Matthew eleven twenty eight. this is where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But in verse 29, equally important, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Underline that. Learn from me. What are we going to learn? For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me, that speaks about surrender, joining up with Him in His will, in His mission. No longer my will, but Thy will be done, obedient to whatever He's calling us to do. Yoke together with Jesus, now I'm going to learn of Him, and from Him. What in particular does He want me to learn? Well, I think the next words are clear. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Learn from my example of true humility. True humility. And then you will find rest for your souls. You know where a lot of our unrest comes from? It comes from what the Bible calls strife. Strife is a result of us striving. We're competing with others. We're striving. We're stepping on people and trying to climb the ladder of success. We're, we're trying to promote ourselves and we're expending lots and lots of energy in doing that. And we end up with no rest because we're continually fighting to push ourselves, promote ourselves, get ahead of the pack, be number one, be top dog. Jesus said, you got it all wrong. If you want rest, if you want peace, just lay it all down. Get yoked with me and learn how to walk humbly the way I walk. I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus did absolutely nothing to promote Himself, and yet the whole world was running after Him. Why? Because He was seeking to please His Father. And He did only what His Father had assigned for Him to do. There's a rest that God has for you and me when we cease from all of our strivings, cease from all of our Pride and arrogance and self promoting schemes, and just lay our life down at his feet and say, Lord, here I am. I give my life to you. Have your way with me. I'm not going to promote myself anymore. I'm not going to try to lift myself up. I'm not going to seek the place of honor, the most important seats. I'm not going to try to get my name in lights or try to impress people with my titles and degrees and accomplishments and all of that. I'm just going to humble myself under your mighty hand and let you lift me up. Can we pray tonight and ask God to help us in this area? This is a very important part of our lives and True spiritual success can only follow true humility. And the converse is also true. If we don't humble ourselves, we're setting ourselves up for a fall. Pride always comes before a fall. Let's pray tonight. Father God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. You, Lord Jesus, said we could take your yoke upon us and learn from you, for you are meek, you're gentle, you're humble in heart. God, so often we have no peace in our lives because we're operating in a spirit of pride, in a spirit of self-promotion, self-will, self-exaltation. God, tonight we want to lay all of that down at your feet, and take Your yoke. Lord, we want to learn from You. And Father, I pray that You would bring a spirit of true humility into each and every one of our hearts and lives. Defeat this Amorite spirit in each and every one of us, O God. Help us to humble ourselves under Your mighty hand that You may praise us, honor us, and lift us up. God, deliver us from seeking the praise, the approval that comes from men and to seek your approval. Seek to please you and only you the same way Jesus, the Son of God, did. Lord, bless each and every one. Fill us with your grace and your peace tonight as we bring this Bible study to a close. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen.